Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the very end of verse 31, and then we're going to read 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 6. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. And here's our passage for this morning. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So in the summer of 2019, I got to take my first sabbatical from ministry. And because I had no idea what to do on a sabbatical, I ended up on my very first week at this church planting conference. And the conference, it was run by a guy named Pete Scazzaro. If you've ever heard of him before, he has written a lot of good books on emotional health in the church. Um, But at this conference, on this first week of sabbatical, uh, I was just, I was exhausted. I was totally burnt out, and all the things they were talking about at this conference, all the talk about ministry and how to fix your church and all the things you should do, it was just, it was stressing me out. And I was thinking in that first week, I'm like, man, I'm I'm blowing this. (laughs) I'm blowing this sabbatical thing. I don't know what to do. And uh, I got an unexpected gift. In the middle of that conference, I got to have lunch with the guy running the conference. I got to have lunch with with Pete, and he gave me some awesome advice. First of all, he said, leave the conference. He said, a sabbatical is, it's for rest. You should not be here if this is stressing you out. He says, stop worrying about all the church stuff right now. Instead, give the soil of your heart a rest so that it can be fruitful when you go back to your ministry. And then he gave me some advice that I I think, well, it certainly changed the course of the next few months for me, but it probably put me on a course that changed my whole life. He said, for the next few months, the only thing I want you to think about is the word delight. He said, what brings your heart delight? Where do you find joy? What fills you up? What gives you life? Whatever that is, draw near to the Lord in that way. Let him meet you in that place of delight. So what about you? What brings you delight? That's really what this question, this this passage we're studying this morning is all about. 
It's about becoming a people who find their delight in the Lord. And I hope that's what we're going to see as we take the next few minutes here and we unpack this verse. I hope you're going to discover here a truth that's going to set us free from this dead religion that is often filled with anxiety and fear. I hope you're going to find something that's going to bring you out of the, the joyless exhaustion of life and bring us into a relationship with God that's filled with delight. That's my goal this morning, but to do that, we've got to do a few things. First, we're going to need to examine our relationship with evil. And then secondly, we need to figure out how truth can become a source of joy in our life. And finally, we need to talk about how we live out that sense of joy in community. So let's, let's get right into it. We need to examine our relationship with evil. So the verse, it says, love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. Now it's tempting to read that verse and kind of interpret it in our minds. We can translate that and, and might, we might think it means something like God's people don't do bad things. God's people do good things. But I want to remind you where we are in scripture. Do you remember what we're reading? We've been doing this now for a few weeks. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're kind of near the end of a letter that Paul wrote to this church in Corinth, and it was a church that had all sorts of gifts. They had a lot of great things going on. The church was growing. And yet, he wrote them this letter because they were lacking the one most important thing. What was that? Remember? Love, right? Yeah, good job. We're getting this, right? I'm feeling good. He wrote this chapter to tell us what Christian love really is. And so, with that in mind, remembering that this passage is about love, let's look at the first half of the verse. Love does not delight in evil. Okay, so there's a few dimensions of what this means, that love does not delight in evil. The first is that our love is shown in the way that we address evil within the community of faith. Our love gets shown by the way we address evil in the church, in the community of faith. And, and Jesus, he gives us a great example of this in his interaction with the rich young ruler. That's a story that shows up in the Gospels. It's in three of the, the Gospels. Um, and if you remember the story, Jesus comes across this guy who asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And they have a very brief conversation, but... Through that conversation, it becomes obvious that this guy, first of all, he wants to be with God. And he believes in that moment that he's living a good life, that he's living a holy life. But Jesus can see that he's blind to a major area of sin in his life. That he loved his wealth. That he loved his affluence. He loved the, his comfort and the position that he held in society. And that, that piece of his life had started to become a pseudo-God. It had become the most important thing to him. And so, Jesus has to tell him a really hard thing. Mark says that Jesus, listen to how he says it. 
Jesus looked at him, and he loved him, and he said, one thing you lack. Go sell everything that you have and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven, and then come, follow me. And the next verse starts off to tell us, and the man's face fell. Now, there's something in our culture, when we think about love, there's this idea in our culture that tells us to truly love someone means that you just accept them as they are. That if you really love somebody, then the way you do that is just through being permissive of all their life choices. That you just let them live their lives and you bite your tongue whenever you see them doing something, even if you know that that decision is going to harm them, that it's going to harm other people in their lives, even if you know that decision might lead them away from the Lord. But Jesus shows us something different. He shows us what real love is like in this little moment. Jesus told that man the hard thing. He pointed out that sin that he saw in his life, but he did it because he wanted to set him free. And, and pay attention, right? It wasn't harsh. As you imagine the scene, can't you just see the compassion in Jesus' eyes when he said that? Maybe even tears welling up. He knew that the words he was going to speak, that they would wound first before they would heal. But he loved him too much to be silent. Right? He didn't do it rashly. He didn't speak in self-righteousness. But you get the sense that Jesus, when he confronts this man, his heart is totally focused on the well-being of that man. He was focused on helping this man who said that he wanted to glorify God with his life. And I mention that specific detail because I think in the church sometimes we can be too focused on our own appearances. I think sometimes in the church we get people and they come into the church and maybe their lives are messy, maybe they don't quite fit in, maybe they don't look right, and we are quick to call out the things that we see wrong. But it's not because we love them. It's because we're worried about the way they might reflect on us. You know what I mean? But Jesus doesn't do that because that's not love. Jesus shows us what it looks like when love motivates us to confront the evil we see in someone else's life, especially within this community of believers. But there's a second dimension of this too. Love doesn't delight in evil. It also means that our love, it's shown by our opposition to evil in our own lives. This whole letter that Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians, he spends a lot of time calling out sins in this church. He mentions a lot of things, and he does it because their sin, what they might think of as private sins or personal sins, those sins are affecting everybody in the community. They're affecting the whole life of the church. And, and the point of this is, I don't want you to be fooled. Your private sin, whatever that might be in your mind, is not as private as you think. Believing that your sin 
only impacts one little corner of your life is like believing that you can pee in one little corner of the pool. <laughs> it spreads. <laughs> it impacts everybody. Now, sadly, the reality of this is much more painful. I, I know an elder who had an affair. And when he was caught having that affair, the, the fallout was disastrous. It was painful. It lasted a really long time. And, and thankfully, at the end of it, he repented. He, he, he held on to his faith. But you know, he wasn't the only one hurt by that. I saw people leave his church who he had discipled. His marriage fell apart. His kids were permanently scarred. Your sin, it's not just about you. If you love other people, then you're going to hate the sin in your life. You're going to expose it to the light before it destroys you and the people around you. And, and look, when I say that, I know that's a terrifying thought, exposing your hidden sins. But, but I want to tell you that, that in this church, if you do that, what you're going to find is grace and mercy here, not judgment. Because we understand what the scripture says, that that is an act of love. Opposing evil in your own life is an expression of your love. Your love for God and your love for others. And then there's a third dimension to this too. Our love doesn't delight in evil. And that means that our love, is, it's shown in the way that we oppose evil in the world. I don't think I need to tell you there's evil in the world. Every day it's in our face, right? We've got oppression, injustice, we have racism, we have violence, we have war. And one of the evidences of our love is our willingness to stand against it. Now, the evangelical church in America, I'm going to be honest, we, we don't really have that great of a reputation right now. And part of the reason for that is because people believe that we only care about things when they impact us. That we only take action on the issues that impact our communities. But this is clear. Love does not delight in evil ever, anywhere. And so that means that, that we, as a church, we are called to stand and oppose evil wherever we encounter it. That means we have to, have to oppose it not just along whatever political lines that we fall, not just along whatever side of, of the culture war we happen to be on. We have to stand against evil. To find delight in the Lord, we've got to examine our relationship with evil everywhere. We've got to lovingly oppose it everywhere we see it. Within the body of Christ, within our own hearts, and in the world around us. And here's the, the second thing we see here. We're also called, if we're going to delight in the Lord, we have to examine how the truth becomes a source of joy. 
Okay, so back to that intro question. What brings you delight? If I surveyed you at the beginning of the service, I don't think any of you would have ever said the truth. I hope, I kind of hope you wouldn't, right? That might make me a little worried. But, the, but, but actually what, what Paul is telling us is a really cool thing. Paul is, is telling us that, that Christians who have a right relationship with the truth, well, the truth is a source of joy. The truth is a source of delight in our lives. So let's break this second part down. Love rejoices in the truth. What does that mean? Love rejoices in the truth. That reminds me of Psalm 119. You guys know Psalm 119? It's the longest chapter in the Bible. It's a, it's a meditation. It's a poem written about how wonderful God's law is. The psalmist, he says things like, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Or, how sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Now, loving the law, that sounds kind of weird to our ears, right? We'd never say something like, oh, how I love the speed limit. Oh, how I, I love the tax code, right? But for God's people, God's law, his law, becomes a truly beautiful thing. For example, let's talk about the Ten Commandments. What are the Ten Commandments? Worship God only. Don't make any idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. And don't covet. All right. Great. Those are the Ten Commandments. What do they do for us? Well, they do a few things. First of all, they show us what God's like. God says, be holy as I am holy. And the Ten Commandments, they tell us what that means. Here is what holiness is. This is what God's character is like. And then secondly, they show us that we're not holy. They condemn us. In our staff meeting this week, we were looking at the Ten Commandments, and I asked the group, which one of these do you think is the hardest to keep? My answer, I said, number six, don't kill. Now, <laughs> I'm going to comfort you. It's not because I'm a serial killer. But it's because that one to me seems like the easiest one to avoid. And yet, when you start to dig into it, when you see what Jesus wrote about it, right? That When Jesus spoke about it, he said, that also means you shouldn't be angry with your neighbor, or by negatively saying don't kill, well, positively, God is saying that we need to be life givers in this world, or like the Westminster says, it, it's a calling for us to provide aid and comfort to those in distress, as well as to protect and defend the innocent. Pretty quickly, when you dig into the law, you start to realize if that's what God requires of me, then I'm in big trouble. Because I'm a lawbreaker. I can't even keep the easiest one. 
And then that brings us to the third thing that the law does. It shows us our need for a Savior. The law points us to Jesus. And you know what Jesus says about the law? Matthew 5, he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but I've come to what? Fulfill them. Okay, so how do you fulfill the law? What does that even mean? How does Jesus fulfill the law? Well, how do you fulfill any law? Let's, let's, let's pick the speed limit. We already mentioned that one. How do you fulfill the law that says 65 miles per hour is the speed limit? Well, you go the speed limit or under. Or what I learned in my teenage years is there's another way to fulfill the requirement of the law. When you break it and you get your ticket for going 96 and a 65, you pay the fine and you go to traffic school for as long as they tell you you have to go. But once that's done, again, the requirement of the law is fulfilled. And so here's what the gospel tells us. It says, we are not righteous before the law. We've broken them. We've broken all of them. But Jesus was righteous. He was holy. He lived this perfect life that we couldn't live. And then on top of that, he came over here to us and he paid the penalty that we owed by dying on the cross right we were the ones who were supposed to die but he died in our place and that means that any of us who turn to Christ in faith well then we're set free from the law the law has been fulfilled it's over it's done with and that means in Christ the law has new usefulness for us it means this in Christ, the law, first and foremost, it testifies of God's mercy and grace in our life. It is this glorious reminder of this tremendous debt that has been paid for us. It is like that speeding ticket that has been stamped, paid in full. But not only that, it shows us, as his redeemed people, the way that we live a life most free. The law, really, in Christ, it's God's loving invitation to a life of freedom. Jesus, when he came, he was serious when he said that he came that we would have life and have it abundantly. And the Ten Commandments, they are for us a picture of what an abundant life looks like. They are an invitation to a life where we worship God above all else. A life where we set aside time regularly in our life to rest and to delight in him and to enjoy his presence. A life where we love our neighbors, where we honor God with our bodies, where we are speaking the truth to one another, where we aren't coveting because we are so content, satisfied in our relationship with him. See, the law, when it's set in its proper place by the gospel, that's the truth that Paul's talking about. The law set in its proper place by the gospel, that's the truth that we rejoice in. Now, if this verse had been a fill-in-the-blank, I think we probably would have guessed it wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in blank. 
I bet we would have probably guessed good, because that's what we know, good versus evil. Those are the two opposite words in our minds. But the choice is not the choice between doing good or doing evil. The choice is between living a life under the power of the evil of sin that ruins us and ruins everything around us. The the choice is between living a life in rebellion from God or the joyful truth of salvation through Jesus. It's not just about being good. It's about the truth getting so deep inside of us that it becomes a source of joy that is constantly transforming our hearts. It's about experiencing for yourself firsthand that God's face is shining on you, that he's delighting in you, and you, in response, are are seeing him and delighting in him so much that you start to look more and more like him. That's what it means for the truth to become a source of joy. But the third thing we see in this passage is that that is something we are called to live out. We're supposed to live out that joy in our community here. Now, I might get in trouble for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. There, there is a church sign in town that I pass by every day, and it just depresses me. This church, sometimes they've got Bible verses on it, which is great. But sometimes it's got these weird political messages on it. And sometimes it just has like flat out bad theology on it. And recently, I think last week, the sign said, love without God is nothing at all. Love without God is nothing at all. And okay, sure, yeah. I understand what they mean by that. I get it. I get the message they're trying to convey, but but it's not what the Bible says. (laughs) What the Bible actually says is God without love is nothing at all. In fact, what it really says is what we read a second ago. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but don't have love, I am nothing. And I think that forgetting love is a far more common mistake that the church makes. That's why Jesus had to keep saying it again over and over, right? The way the world's going to know that you're my disciples is not by your great theology. It's about if you love one another. And so many churches, in their effort to be defenders of of the truth, They've forgotten to delight in the truth. They've forgotten that the truth is supposed to be communicated to us as a source of joy and and freedom. And And I know so many people who have been harmed by these religious communities. These people who, devoid of love, have tried to use the truth as a hammer. But the truth, it can't exist apart from love. The truth is about God's love, right? For God so 
loved the world that he gave his only son. Paul wants us to know we, we are called to be a community that delights in that news. In Christ, God's law, it doesn't crush us with guilt. It, it woos us with its beauty. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. Now listen, that doesn't mean that following Jesus is always going to be easy. Don't misunderstand me. It doesn't mean that our hearts are never going to resist that call, that we're never going to turn and fall flat on our face. Following Jesus at its core, it still is an invitation to come and die. But we come and die because he promises us that one day we're going to rise again. And be with him forever in joy, in eternity, in the presence of his delights. Paul's telling us that the church that gets this, that does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth, that church is going to be a powerful testament, a powerful witness to Christ's love. Again, this is not just a, a call for us to be good people. It's a call for us, for the church, for this body, for center church, to be the kind of community you don't see anywhere else. The kind of community, a community of love that rejoices in the truth. That knows how to lovingly call people out of their sin and into a life of God's abundance. Not a bunch of self-righteous people who are pointing their fingers in judgment, but a family of forgiven sinners who know how to walk alongside people who stumble, who know how to humbly lift them back up and help them find their way. That's who we're called to be. And you know what? I'm actually really optimistic about our chances here. Because I have already seen glimpses of this in our church. I've already seen you loving each other in this kind of way. Let me just tell you a quick story. Okay? Lou Schwartz, he's here sitting in the, over, over here in the corner. Some of you may know him. Lou was a deacon in the last term. And one of his assignments as a deacon was to call a certain group of people and just check on, in on them every month and see how they were doing. And so Lou uh, started calling this one older couple in our church who's not been able to come to, to the service in a long time and just check in, see how they were doing. And then... When he rotated off the diaconate, when that was no longer his job, he continued to do it. Not out of obligation, but out of love. And a few weeks ago, I asked Lou if he'd come with me and go visit the couple in person. And I, I'm not going to be able to do justice to this as I try to describe it to you, but I just, I wish you could see, have seen it. That this moment, 
when, when Lou and this couple first met each other face to face, it was just joyful. It, it, was, it was a beautiful thing for me to witness, to see Lou, who's been struggling with some of his own challenges lately, to see him going out of his way to serve these people, to care for them, to care for this man and to care for his wife out of love. Right? There were no guilt trips. <laughs> Just simply fellowship, communication. And it was all, it was all rooted in, in Lou's love for this brother and sister. It was all rooted in, in Christ's love for us as his people. It was amazing. And folks, that kind of stuff, it only happens in a place where Christ is known. Where his mercy has been experienced. Where his truth is rejoiced in. And I can't wait to see what God's going to do here as that love continues to grow in our hearts. As, as he turns us more and more into these people who are really delighting in him. And I can't wait to see what God's going to do in our church as he brings more messy and broken people whose lives don't quite look the same as ours. He brings them to be a part of this loving community where they can experience that joy with us. That love that doesn't delight in evil but it rejoices in, in the glorious truth that God's taken us and turned us from foreigners to citizens, from, from exiles into heirs, from strangers into this joyful family. Lord, I am amazed when I see these words that your desire is to see our hearts transformed not just our actions, not just our behaviors. Lord, but you, you call us to see that your law, in the same movement that it condemns us, points us to a Savior and becomes a source of freedom and joy. I pray, Lord, that this church, Lord, that you would help us to become a, ch a church that, that rejoices in your truth, that lives together in, in holy beautiful connection with one another. And I pray for anybody here this morning who doesn't know your love, who maybe feels the weight of your condemnation on them today. God, would they see the offer that you've given them of salvation through Jesus? Would they come to you? Would they experience your mercy? Lord, we pray in Christ's name.